I, I went to my partner and I was like, hey, they want us to abort, it's too dangerous. And I was like, I might be the lead investigator on the team, but your life's at risk too. What, what do you want to do? This is Until All Are Free, a podcast by The Exodus Road. I'm Preston Goff. The Exodus Road is a nonprofit dedicated to the strategic fight against human trafficking across the globe. We gather intelligence, empower nationals, and facilitate rescue missions alongside local law enforcement as we fight to end human trafficking around the world. The Exodus Road was founded in 2011 And to date, we've celebrated over 1,375 rescues and 688 trafficker arrests. On today's episode, we're bringing you an interview conversation from early in 2020 that I had with Drew, our director of Delta Operatives. A quick listener note, this episode includes descriptions of abuse and sexual violence that may be triggering for some listeners. There are also some words that we've left unbeat. Okay, here's the interview. Hey there, listener. My name is Preston Goff, and I'm the creative director here at the Exodus Road. Sitting across from me right now is an individual who is very near and dear to our hearts here in the organization. Drew is our director of Delta Operations, which means that he organizes and communicates with our Delta operatives volunteers from the United States who are vetted and trained to fight trafficking on short-term deployments across the globe. Drew, it is great to have you with us today. It's good to be here. So I wonder if you might just share a bit about your story, um, where you're from, what your background is, and then ultimately what led you to your first encounter with the Exodus Road. Yeah, absolutely. Um, First off, let me say it's an honor to be doing this with you. Um, it's not something I'm used to. I'm used to being in the shadows. So I uh, was born up north in Wisconsin and then moved away. So moved all over, uh, moved back to Wisconsin to finish high school and then joined the military and uh, did the military for about 21 years. Did a bunch of deployments with them. Uh, while I was there in the military, I, I ended up meeting my wife and uh, while I was on leave and ended up asking her to marry me like three days after we met, which was crazy, but it's worked out well so far. And then promptly left for a year and she waited the whole time and I knew she was the one. And, and so my last deployment didn't quite go the way we wanted it to go. And I ended up getting wounded um, ended up breaking my back, got like a really easy gunshot wound. Uh, but that kind of started the process of, of having to look to do something else. And so I, I retired, got out of the military and, and just kind of, hey, God, what do you want me to do? And uh, ended up doing a pastoral internship, was asked to do that. And, and while doing that, uh, ran into an individual by the name of David Zock, who's uh, lead singer of the band Remedy Drive. An amazing, 
amazing individual, although I didn't know it when we first met. But after a concert, he kind of singled me out. I'm not even really sure. It's just weird sequence of events. We ended up talking for about half an hour. My wife was waiting for me to leave, wanting to hurry. His band was like, hey, let's go home. It's Easter weekend. And he just told me about this organization called the Exodus Road and some of the work he did with it, going undercover into brothels to try to rescue victims of human trafficking. And yeah, I'd heard of human trafficking, but I mean, I didn't, it was something, you know, I've heard of Picasso, but I've never really seen any of his paintings. <laughs> but uh, it just kind of really got my mind thinking like, wow, that this is something I could do. I really wasn't sure what I was going to do when I grew up, so to speak. And, and so ended up emailing them a couple days later. And that started me on my journey to becoming a, a volunteer with Exodus Row. Thank you. Yeah. I, I want to step back just a moment too, and just see if you can take us into a little bit about um, like the, the very end of your military career. Cause I know um, you just had some amazing story to share with us as a team. And I wonder if you might just take us into that just a little bit um, and invite us into that process. So the end of my career, I definitely would recommend somebody choosing a different, uh, different ending when they're finishing something up. But I was on my ninth combat deployment and it was pretty tough. It was Afghanistan 2010, and we were getting shot at, like, every day. I think the three months I was over there, we got shot at every single day, our aircraft. I, I was task force senior enlisted, uh, or for military people know, it's the first sergeant of a task force of special operations aviation. And um, it was rough we got shot at all but one day the whole time i was there and we were taking hits on average about every three days and so it was pretty stressful a lot of a lot of the guys were, were suffering from combat fatigue and so i was trying to get out with them about every three days to fly with them and uh, unfortunately you know sooner or later you 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 push the envelope of, and bad stuff happens. And so we ended up going into what we call a hot LZ for the third time. And uh, that was, I guess, third time to charm for them. They ended up uh, shooting our aircraft down. One of the first bullets coming through the aircraft uh, ended up hitting me in my hand, which really, I mean, I couldn't move my hand for a little while or feel it, but it wasn't that significant. But about seven minutes later, Helicopter crashed, and that was a little more significant. I ended up breaking my back, fracturing my pelvis. Um, but, I mean, it sounds really bad, but and it, it, I guess in a way it was, but it could have been a lot worse. Everybody on the aircraft survived. We were rescued a couple hours later, and uh, of course went back to the United States and unfortunately began the process of medical rehabilitation, which unfortunately did not bring me to a point where I could continue with my military career. So, so you've taken us down this, 
this story of how you first kind of heard about the Exodus Road and um, learned about what it meant to be an operative. And maybe some people would hear that and would say, oh, I could do that. Uh, I could be a Delta operative. Um, that's what I want to do. Maybe they feel stirred to do it. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what that process was like for you of applying, going through the vetting process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, but let me begin by saying, in my experience, when I tell people what I do, uh, the biggest answer I get is, I could never do that. Um, and that's kind of critical in what the vetting process identifies, because there's a very specific psychological uh, model that they're looking to find in an individual. There's lots of people who could do it, but there isn't a lot of people who can do it and maintain uh, their mental health or spiritual health uh, or their sanity. And so the vetting process begins with your initial contact of, hey, I'm interested. And then you follow up with, uh, you'll do a resume, uh, a one-page essay, if you will, or paper, of just explaining why you want to become a uh, volunteer covert intelligent officer, which is what we call our, our undercover operatives. Uh, and, and human trafficking in general, like what is your passion? What is your motivation? Uh, once that takes place and, and they look through that and, and decide whether you're a right fit, you go to the next step, which in, involves doing a background check, a criminal history report, uh, you know, if you're fingerprinted, you do a, uh, a very, very robust psychological eval. And from there, again, they weed out people they don't think um, are going to be a good fit for the organization. And once they've done that, then you're invited to come to Colorado Springs for a, uh, a, the final vetting, if you will. And, and that basically involves some briefings and like three interviews with uh, different people in the, within the organization and with uh, a psychologist. Do you remember what your process was like when you applied personally and kind of take us into what, what you were thinking, what you were feeling in that process? Going into a special operations unit, I, you know, there's a vetting process in there. And so I, I, it was it didn't really bother me like some people, but it was very, very difficult. Um, you talk to people and they're just the most amazing, nicest individuals in the world. But the vetting process, they're trying to find out what you can and can't deal with. There's a lot of people who have big hearts and, and want to, to be in that intervention side. <laughs> I remember going in to one of the uh, interviewers and as I was getting ready to go in, someone was coming out with tears pouring down their face. I was like, oh boy. Um, what is this going to be like? And my psych evaluation showed some things that they wanted to test test out. And, and so they like kicked me out. I mean, they were screaming at me. They kicked me out. And, and so I, I left the, that, that final vetting here in Colorado Springs. I called my wife. She's like, how'd you do? And I'm like, I don't think they're going to accept me. <laughs> um, you know, I, I just, I know I said the right stuff, but... I just don't think I'm who they're looking for. And a week later, they uh, contacted me, let me know I'd been accepted. So, so you make it through the vetting process, um, and ultimately you get that first invitation to a deployment. You start participating in deployments. 
And I think for a lot of people, we're just curious to know, like, what, what is a typical deployment like? Um, you know, from the moment you land on the ground in a country to the moment you leave for home, how long do deployments last? Like, what are some of the things that you experience regularly? Deployments are different based on where you go in the world. Um, the majority of our deployments have been in Southeast Asia. And so the biggest thing when you first start that deployment is you're just completely jet lagged and worn out. I mean, you're coming literally for our operatives in the United States, you're coming from the opposite side of the world. So you're exhausted, you're jet lagged, you're tired, and you get on the ground and you go right into training. Um, because of, of how we do undercover work with our Western investigators, you know, these are just ordinary people. They don't do it for a living. And so we want to make sure that they're trained and prepared properly for, for what we're asking them to do and what they're going to see. So you go straight into training that first day. And classroom stuff can be pretty difficult when you're exhausted. And at the end of that first day, we, we have what we call our, our baptism of fire, where we take people in. Sometimes it's their first time going into a brothel. Uh, for those who have done it a few times, it's just to get them reacclimated to the sights and sounds and the smells uh, of, of being inside a brothel and being around victims. And so that goes, you know, usually one, two in the morning. Mm. You come back and try to get some sleep. But of course, your body is telling you you're supposed to be awake. And so the following morning, you go back right into to training. And we start going over... Uh, really that second day about uh, the, the, the art of undercover work, the equipment we use, the techniques we use, and stuff like that, which, of course, I can't discuss right. on this podcast. And, and then you go out that second night, and it's, it's, it's live. It's full-blown um, trying to find victims, building investigations. You, you'll be out all night, and you'll get up the next morning, and you'll do uh, all your case files because it, it's it's no good to to find a victim if you can't uh, rescue them. And, and we only work with law enforcement. We don't what some people call freelance. That's just not what we do. And uh, so we have to be able to present cases to law enforcement that they can action. At the end of two weeks, um, you know, we'll do another deployment debrief, and then we usually follow up. Uh, our, you know, we get calls from a psychologist, we get calls from uh, Delta leadership and the leadership of the Exodus Road, just how are you doing? Because this is very different right. than, say, being a fireman, a police officer or a, uh, a military member, you know, which all have very high suicide rates um, because there's just there's not a lot of people who go undercover right. to fight human trafficking. Right. And so and normally there's nobody we can talk to. So we really, really try to follow up and evaluate mental health. And just, we care about our investigators and um, that organization cares about all of us and wants to make sure we're okay. So I wanna talk a little bit about some of the misconceptions about what a deployment is and what it isn't. I think so often um, people in the US have what we call the like taken model for human trafficking. The um, the way that Hollywood's portrayed it, or maybe they they imagine that um, an operative is kind of a James Bond character. And I wonder if you would just describe a little bit like some of the 
the characteristics of, of the people who are Delta operatives. You know, in the organization, we say justice is in the hands of the ordinary, and we really live that out and believe that. And I think that where that really comes to life um, best is even amongst our Delta operatives team. So I wonder if you might just... Yeah, absolutely. And you're absolutely right. The whole taken that people a lot of times think we're kicking down doors or we're uh, you know, running into brothels and we're grabbing these girls or, the, or that we, you know, have weapons and helicopters swooping in. And, and that's not what we do. Uh, you know, it has changed a lot over the four or five years that I've done it. Um, we began with Delta where it was just Western investigators. And as we have grown to all these different countries with national investigators, our role has gone from kind of this lead role to a secondary backup role. You know, our job is literally, we're there to assist nationals in helping push forward investigations, especially in places that national investigators can't go, where yeah. they need Western to go to. But we are not, I'm the exception. There are very few people who have military backgrounds. I mean, we have some military and some law enforcement, of course, but most of our people are just everyday people. You know, we have a lot of pastors or, you know, uh, plumbers and, you know, you name it, we have those people that do it. And the reason for that is, you know, that's the people who fit the profile. Mm -hmm. We go over there to pretend like we're bad guys, that we're, we're Johns or Janes. Um, which a John is just somebody who purchases a victim. A Jane is, of course, a woman's version of a John. But, you know, we have to fit in. And unfortunately, that taken mindset, it just doesn't, doesn't work. Yeah, you know, the reason we can't run in and just grab people is if I take a kid out, that, that syndicate is still there. I mean, it feels good and it's great for that one kid, but the problem is there's, that's still there. And so they're gonna find somebody else and they're gonna put them in there. And, and so our belief is that by going after traffickers and in the process rescuing all these victims, we take out that whole syndicate. We are, and if we don't take a whole syndicate out, we at least take out part of it. And that's less kids that have to fill that. And so by doing so, we end up not, you know, lowering the number of, of victims that are, in, you know, victims of human trafficking. Um, you know, a few years ago, I think it was 45.8 million people were estimated to be victims of human trafficking. And with this increased awareness of people of counter-human trafficking, it's the last, I think, number was, was 40.2. So it's working. I mean, we still have a long, long way to go, but it's working. And how it's really working for us is this empowering local nationals to do the work. Uh, you know, I can pretend like I'm the great white savior and come over and I'm going to change the, your world. And that's just, that's just not going to happen. It requires, you know, people change their own countries. And they're the ones that are going to make their world a better place yeah. for, for their people. And we have some amazing, amazing national investigators. People who literally risk their lives every single day and they live in the areas they work. You know, I fly halfway around the world, depending on where I'm going, and I'm there for two weeks and then I leave. 
they're there all the time and they're mm -hmm. creating these relationships right. with law enforcement and, and with the judicial system and with other uh, groups that are in that human trafficking sphere. And I mean, they're just, they're heroes that for me, the tragedy is the world will never know their names. I mean, they're literally the modern equivalent to all these heroes that we have in the abolitionist movement. They're the modern day ones and the world will never know their name, mm -hmm. but we'll know and we know what they did. And they were, it's an honor to be able to, to work with them and to help them out and to call them friends. Yeah, thanks for that, yeah. So you begin working on deployments as a Delta operative. And I imagine it, it really doesn't take too long to learn that there's a lot of systems in, in place that are trying to undermine the rescue process, right? And I wonder if you might um, speak a little bit about that, but also I, I want you to tell us a little bit about what it's like and what it was like to experience success for the first time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is a lot, I mean, you said there's a lot that can go wrong to do when you're trying to rescue victims and build a case. My first successful case involved uh, film, and, and that was a six month long case. I'll never forget the first time I saw him. It was the first time I didn't have to dig for evidence mm -hmm. to prove that somebody is a minor or a victim of human trafficking. I mean, they were the, 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 uh, trafficker was like, this is a 16-year-old boy and this is a 15-year-old boy. We had, I think it was seven, seven young boys that they brought in front of us that, that first trip there. Mm. Uh, and, and then we left. Yeah. And that's, as, that's one of the hardest things is leaving. Yeah. You see a lot, a lot, a lot of victims and your heart breaks for them and you want, you want to do the taken thing and pull them right. out. But that doesn't, that doesn't put a dent in human trafficking. And so when you leave, you wonder, are you ever gonna see this person again? Mm -hmm. Are they, will they ever be rescued? Because the majority of the time they won't, it's just statistically speaking. I, I think the success rate across not just our organization, just across the board in human trafficking is 2%. Wow, wow. Um, and so it's tough. Yeah. And we went back and I saw Fim again, mm -hmm. along with some other, uh, some other kids. And then finally we found that, you know, the anti-human trafficking police are like, hey, let's, let's action this. And so they called me and another guy, you know, we get the phone call, hey, can you get a plane in, in three days? I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so we got on a plane and went to Southeast Asia and went there and it was amazing. At this point, we had been there so many times that they knew who we were and trusted us and we were always greeted with open arms. And so we went there to kind of set up for the raid the following day. And <laughs> it was like 50 kids there. I mean, we're like, this is just going to be an amazing success. And unfortunately, we talked about there's sometimes there's things that happen. And unfortunately, the following day, they found out that anti-human trafficking police were in the area. And there was just, <laughs> we, we show up and they wouldn't even talk to us. There was no, no kids there. It was just the traffickers. They wouldn't talk to us. Um, we have 
handlers who were offsite and they were telling us, hey, it's too dangerous. The police are saying you need to abort. And I was trying to like, hey, just let us work this. We've done, we've been in situations like this before. Let us, let us work it. And I, I went to my partner and I was like, hey, they want us to abort, it's too dangerous. And I was like, I might be the lead investigator on the team, but your life's at risk too. What, what do you want to do? And I'll never forget what he said. He was like, I, I couldn't live with myself if I left my wife and kid, or my wife and daughters in this place after only 15 minutes. We're not leaving. And at this particular investigation, we were going after young boys. So these were males we're going after. It wasn't his two daughters or his wife. But that's how we see them. Mm-hmm. There are wives, there are kids. They're our sons and our daughters, and they're worthy of our effort. And so we stayed. And after about an hour, finally, someone came and talked to us. And after a few hours, they were trying to get kids to come, but they were all scared. They were trying to get people to bring them, and nobody, they knew human trafficking police were in the area. But after we'd been there for quite some time, kids started to show up. And we saw them coming in on, on little scooters. And while this was going on, I found out after the fact that where the police were staged with our handlers, they were get, they got out of their vehicles and were like, hey, abort. It's too late. They're, they're not going to happen. And so our handlers started typing a message to, to send to us, telling us, hey, abort, get out of there. It's not going to work. Well, we immediately, we knew we had been there a long time. So we're like, we want to buy that kid. And it happened to be Phil, mm-hmm. who six months previously had been the first minor I, I really found. Well, minor that had just said, hey, I'm a minor. And so I typed in, hey, we have, we have a victim. Get ready to move. And so he yells, get back in the cars. And the police all run around, jump back in and and so I, I took him to a room that was on site there, and we did the techniques we used to, to delay till the police get there. And 10 minutes later, I had police coming through the door, and uh, they had rescued you know, six or seven young boys, had rescued uh, two or three traffickers, and, and Fim. Fim uh, was rescued and, and put into the proce- uh, process of, of the social worker process of, of aftercare and all that. And, you know, that was my first time that somebody I had sat with mm-hmm. had been rescued. And it, it really, it, he's the face of human trafficking to me that I might have to leave somebody, but someday, someday freedom can come to him if we just persevere and go long-term. The, the final question I have for you um, is this, when you're around this work, um, it, it has to have a way of embedding itself into you so that when you're in the middle of some of the most mundane tasks, there are stories, there are scenes, there are faces that come back to your mind, things that you can't shake. And, um, I just wonder if you would mind just sharing, like, what is it, like, what is one story that keeps you awake at night? Like the thing that you can't shake right now that just is driving you forward to continue this work? Man, that is a, 
a tough question and I'm hoping I can get through this without breaking down. Um, when you do this work, when you do the actual intervention side, because you know, we're just one piece of a, a big puzzle of, of counter human trafficking, you know, donors, the staff here at TR, advocates, you know, all of that makes it possible. Unfortunately, for those of us who are actually at that, that end of the, that chain of people who go inside, the things you see are devastating. The things that a human being will do to another human being, and it changes you. It never leaves your mind. You know, you wake up in the morning and you look at your clock and you're like, on the other side of the world, some poor young girl or young boy is walking into a short time room with a John or a Jane. You go about your day and it's just, it's always there. And that's what keeps me awake at night is the faces that this long line of faces that come through my mind and my dreams that are still there right now. You know, film's what gives me the hope to keep going on, to keep going, you know, because if I just keep doing it, I can rescue them. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, Drew. Thanks for the conversation that we've shared today. And I just want to say on behalf of the entire Exodus Road and all of our supporters, um, that we're just really grateful, not only for the work that you do, but the spirit that you have when you do it. Um, so thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure and honor. Thank you for having me. I hope that this interview with Drew has left you inspired and excited to share what you've learned about human trafficking with people in your home, workplace, and community. If you're ready to learn more about The Exodus Road, visit us on our website at theexodusroad.com or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at our handle, at The Exodus Road. If you'd like to be the first to know when a new rescue takes place, you can subscribe to our rescue text by texting ER to 51555. Until All Are Free is a product of The Exodus Road, a nonprofit dedicated to the strategic fight against human trafficking across the globe. The podcast is hosted by me, Preston Goff, and produced by Isaac Lay. Our internal themes were produced by Lucas Lay, and the music you heard on the intro and outro was produced and generously donated by City of Sound. New episodes of Until All Are Free will be released soon, and you can expect compelling stories from the front lines of human trafficking rescues, conversations with people just like you who illustrate what it means to live as if justice is in the hands of the ordinary, interviews with our founders, Matt and Laura Parker, and representative stories inspired by the experiences of real survivors that the Exodus Road has rescued. You can subscribe to Until All Are Free wherever you get your podcasts. And it helps us if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For when the sky falls, you can become. For when the sky falls,